0: Hey, everybody. This week on Required Reading, we talk about the classic Toni Morrison story, Beloved. I will admit, I have read this twice, and the narrative style and the, you know, just the kind of magical realism of it all make it much more conducive to discussion in terms of, like, a a book club, you know, chapter by chapter, or, I guess appropriately enough, a classroom. So I will admit that at times when I read it, as you'll hear in the podcast, I was a little bit confused as to what was happening. However, this is the second time I've gone through it, and I enjoyed it both times. We hope you're having a great week, and I hope this finds you well. Thanks for doing all you do to get the podcast about by sharing, by reviewing, by introducing new people to the show. Thanks. Welcome to Required Reading. This week we are talking Toni Morrison's Beloved. uh, You don't really win a Nobel Prize for one book. It's for a lifetime of books. But this is the book closest to her winning the award. Uh, So she's a Nobel Laureate in Literature, and this book itself won the Pulitzer Prize. I read it once for a history class, and it confused me. And I'm reading it now for you, and it confused me. So luckily I have two people here to help me. My uh, co-host? Mike Burns and a panelist.
1: Chase Thompson.
0: And we are going to talk about this uh, incredibly crucial, incredibly important uh, changing. You yeah, know, we uh, should say
2: Chase is a former student of ours from American yeah. Experiments. So she is. Welcome here and the current mayor senior. And, um, and in
0: my advisory. There you go. There's one student I actually talked to about reading. It's her. So we actually <laughs> wanted her on the show. We've tried before. It just hasn't worked out. So I again. Know. Scheduling is hard. It is. It is especially hard, Especially yeah. with juniors and seniors, uh, where your life is changing rapidly.
2: So, back to you, Nick. Where... Was it a high school class you read for history? Probably grad not. School. Grad school. Okay. <laughs> it's a
0: grad school course. Right. I read it opposite some Alice Walker and some Joel Chandler Harris. It was a history of Georgia class specifically. Okay. Um, and I've read The Bluest Eye as well. All right. Um, and...
2: Although there's parts set in Georgia, so I wouldn't really consider it a Georgia novel. So, it's interesting. Um,
0: Glenn, T. asked, wanted a, a southern opinion. Uh, he wanted he wanted some southern literature. Um, we asked, uh, we even watched some um, kind of uh, dramatic black film as well. We watched an episode of Roots, for example, and it, it was it was a way to contextualize not only the post war kind of civil war era, but also how it was viewed as we get through the seventies and eighties, and you know Jesse Jackson running for president.
2: And such. Right. Interesting. Okay. Yep.
0: Um, anyway, so. Um, I've read it twice how did you come apart it how, what do you think of it
1: Um, I read it once in AP Lit it was, so it was about a year ago and I loved it and even continuing back and taking notes on it since I have read it I still continue to like it and part of the reason why I really do enjoy it is because beyond it just capturing like a significant historical time period I think there's so much like you were saying it's a complete confusing book and it's a book that you have to pick apart and I think with in that sense you get to know the book really well because to read it you want to understand it and to understand that you have to pick it apart so I like it because I think it's a challenge um so that's my opinion yeah
0: no it's
2: fine. Right. I read it first um like so I would have been in high school towards the end when it when it came out but I definitely didn't read it in high school and I knew of it um but I never read it until I was here at Marison twenty. 2006. And I started teaching a class on American slave narratives. And everyone's like, you should read this. You should put that in your... So I'm asking everybody what I should, as I'm building the curriculum. Um, And other English teachers are like, you should read this. And so I read it and was blown away. But it was the wrong book to pick for an elective. Because electives here at Marist are usually a little lighter and sort of um, a break. I mean, if you're interested in something, you can go deep on it. But it's not meant to be maybe as rigorous. Is that fair to say, Nick, or Chase, in your experience?
0: I mean, for it's, electives? Th- yeah.
2: I mean, there's no slight to people who no, teach electives because I, I teach electives too. Yeah. But it, it's a weird balance. Like, you want to challenge them, but you don't want to overload them as, with an the extra class. So it was the wrong book for that because it's so heavy mm-hmm. and we'll get to and so intense. Um, and frankly, a challenge to read the first time through. It, it's confusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll talk about that. Um, and then when I started teaching AP Lit uh, along with Gigi Moorhead and then Shannon Hipp, um, it was, it's been a part of the AP Lit curriculum for a long time. And so that's how I really got to know it um, and appreciate it in a different way. And it's one of those books that I'll jump to the end here. You can read it 50 times and still not get everything. It's still evolving and still you know opening for you in new ways, which is what makes it so great. So we'll try to do our best, but there's no way we're going to get to everything. Mm-hmm. We were talking about that before in in forty or fifty minutes here. And so not
0: even close. Yeah. Um, just out of curiosity, because I didn't, I was not accepted into AP Lit or like really. But
2: no, um,
0: I was not good at things. Um, how does that work? Why would why would a book like this fit? Just out of curiosity, uh, from from an assignment point of view.
2: Um, I would say what what is great about it. it not unlike the great Gatsby or any really good literature that it's, you could pretty much open to any page. And I'm looking at my heavily annotated book here that, and you could do a close reading on that. And so you can really um, teach the kids um, what a close reading is and how everything is there for a reason and how all these themes and ideas and little objects. I know Dr. Beezy teaches an elective just on this clock on this book and all the Oh no, he does. It's Invisible Man, but same sort of idea. Everything is there for a reason, and everything um, ties together. And and so you can really see the craft of it, and it's really it's great for teaching close reading skills. To answer your question, there.
1: I would agree because I think in a class like AP Lit, you're anticipating having like essays in which you're asked to close read on like short-term time limits so you're prepared to look for those things and you're constantly looking for them because you're just you're adapted to that within the course rigor. Right. So like you were saying if it's in a one term elective where you're reading multiple books, you honestly just don't have the time to pick the book apart. Like I would say like you were saying it would even be better if there was just an elective course just on this book because yeah. then you're going at it purposefully, oh, I'm going to look for these things because I mean, we spent probably a month and a half on it and sure. by that point we were used to like going through it and looking for those specific things knowing we were going to be asked for them so
0: well that's interesting because it's like like 40 pages a week almost because it's and I can see that so this is works because and fading into the book here this is like capital L literature right like it's I don't know how you would classify it in terms of genre it's historically based um the narrative structure is very complex there's flashbacks and so much of it is a mixture of description um of events from our kind of narrator but dialogue is either incredibly crucial and brief or very long and almost vapid right and which makes it feel like we're reading um i, I don't know what like magical realism latin american magical realism uh it's said that when she was young, uh, Morrison liked reading Tolstoy. I can see that in this to an extent as well. Like, the, on one hand, there's incredible characterization. And on the other hand, I feel like I don't know some of these characters very
2: well. Sure. And right. and, um, and I stole this from Shannon. And so the way we used to teach it, and we talked about this when we did The Things They Carried, is we teach it as trauma lit or, mm-hmm. um, and how dealing with one's trauma and here the case of trauma and slavery and systemic racism, generational slavery mm-hmm. and racism. Um, the story you tell and memory and rememory, and how it's circular and, and you're retelling stories and then things stick and things pass through and it's not always clear and you're revisiting and some things you want to talk about and some things you don't want to, and you keep buried. I'm thinking of Paul D. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, but that's hard when you just step into it, and it's, it's confusing because those are complex things, and she's mirroring that in the way she structures it. Um, Chase, I'm curious, like, if some friend of yours said, oh, beloved, tell me about it, what would you say? Can you give a little short blurb? Or Yes, I
1: can give a short blurb. So I would say that beloved kind of follows the life of Setha. Mm-hmm. Okay, right setha and her daughter denver they live in 124 bluestone and that's kind of a really central part 124 of the whole novel and she throughout the novel she's kind of reflecting on her time living on a plantation sweet home right in kentucky and she has there's this spirit that is within 124 named beloved and the spirit kind of i would say kind of controls and dominates the workings inside the house and soon enough, the trajectory of the characters. Um, and I feel like the book kind of follows the overarching narrative of how memories are passing in and out of the house and how things from the past, like we brought up re-memory are actually really impacting the present.
2: Very good. Good. That's tight. Um, yeah. And so there's a quote here that um, I think it's from Morrison talking about the reader. she says, I wanted the reader to be kidnapped thrown ruth- ruthlessly into an alien environment as the first step into a shared experience with the book's population without preparation or defense. Yeah, so it sort of just like hits you uh, in that way. and You're, you're confused and, and distorted, but the writing itself on a sentence level is just so lyrical and beautiful. It just sort of carries you along. So there's this weird contrast between the harsh, I mean, there's some really harsh parts, but just the lyricism of the writing, Yeah. And and then too, just the historical part, right? It's it's based on the true story. And mm-hmm. you can jump in here, Nick, of course, on Margaret Garner. Did you guys yeah. talk about that? And, we did. Yeah. No, I
0: mean it's just um so this book like I said, it jumps all over the place, so it's kind of hard to keep track of everything. But we are we, we start in the like eighteen seventies in Cincinnati, Ohio. And Ohio, and I, can, you know, I believe uh, Toni Morrison herself is from that region of Ohio, southeast Ohio, or southwest Ohio. But it's an area that's always kind of been torn, right? Um, because Kentucky was a slave state, though not the most slave state, but it was also the path that slaves would escape, right? Once you get across the river, something you bring up when we talk about Uncle Tom's Cabin, Right. And this is, in some ways, kind of the more intense, more accurate version of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, uh, Based around Garner, who was, like, threatened by the uh, Fugitive Slave Law of the 1850s, uh, which... Yeah, um, she
2: escaped and then fled to Cincinnati, and then slave catchers Mm -hmm. chased her down. And as they trapped her, um, she was trying to murder her children to save them from going back into slavery. Which I never knew about in high school. Did you learn that in high school, Nick? Uh,
0: this particular story, no. Yeah. Um, so now the the actual killing of slaves, uh, slaves killing their children is not unheard of. Um, and you bring the painting in when we talk about um, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah, the modern idea, right? Um,
2: Which they, is actually at I saw it a couple of years ago at, at the um, Underground Railroad Museum in Cincinnati. Yeah. Either of you been there? Haven't. Yeah, it's worth a visit if you're in the area. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, and so, like, the context here is interesting because since she layers the history so much as with flashbacks, you lose kind of track that this is actually after slavery should have ended. Mm-hmm. And because, I mean, again, like you said, it's trauma lit. It's, it's, so, it, it, it reads very much like PTSD literature or something where there's flashbacks back and forth and, you know, um, there's a lot of sexual scenes where flashbacks then come in and they kind of subvert the whole emotion of the scene and it, and it makes it kind of hard to to track at times which again it's not a, a problem it, it makes it a compelling piece of literature this is um considering some of the books we've done recently we've said oh you could read this in a day or so this is not that <laughs> this no. is <laughs> this is a very heavy book um and Toni Morrison writes a lot about a lot about heavy things um and I think she's excellent at it. this book really is moving
2: so, Chase, I'm curious, of all the books that we could have talked about, why did you want to get in on this podcast and, and join us today? And we're so glad you're here.
1: Oh, okay. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, I'm partially because Dr. Hoffman and I were kind of talking about what books were on the docket. And I had remembered, you know, I had I just recently read Beloved kind of as of a year ago, which honestly feels recent, recent, considering like how many books kind of come and go and how many books you read in the span of a year um and i was really excited to be able to come here and talk about beloved because i think it's great to kind of revisit it after reading it over a year ago and also after diving so deep into it in a class where you spend over a month analyzing it so i think being able to come on here again and talk about it with fresh perspectives and people who i've never talked to either of you guys about the book um not only did i want to come on here and talk about it but also kind of to hear other perspectives
2: so where do you want to start what would you like to talk about what, what sticks out to you when you're revisiting it and coming back to it?
1: Um, really, what... And we talked about this so continually uh, in our discussions about the book. is What sticks out to me is the prevalence of 124 Bluestone. I remember one day we would look through a page and kind of circle any time that was mentioned, and how Dr. Hoffman was ta- mentioned, how it, sometimes you feel like you don't know the characters at all, because there's so little dialogue, and it, you know, the it's so jumbled and how it's kind of switches between the past and the present really one of the things to me that remained consistent was the setting um in that house and i think that house kind of held a lot of their trauma like in place and them not being able to get out of that so i think being able to track that throughout the book was something that is something that's like noteworthy to me really yeah.
0: so um something that i noticed as we went through this like as i went through this i um, I've had the tragedy of having to read this on my own both times, uh, talking about it at the end, which <laughs> I read a lot. This this is sometimes very hard to follow, and I apologize. It's my own incompetence as a reader. Um, I think the interesting thing about establishing the house so much, and it's, like, referred to as spiteful and gray and, like, this two-story house with a shed, right? And And we get to know it very well, which is, you know, it's almost in its, its transition because we we know the setting. We know very specifically the setting. But it's interesting because it's their home. Uh, you know, we're, we, we're referring to all these characters, you know, born back as far as the 1830s. The idea of a black person owning something like this, especially in the South, is impossible. And so to have this house be the focal point is is crucial to the world building that she's doing because we're talking about people straddling their availability to even live and Something I mentioned when we teach the class, uh, when I teach history, the Compromise of 1850 and the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 is incredibly disruptive, especially after the Dred Scott decision, where there's a government not interested in protecting these people and them suddenly being told they're never going to be citizens and never can be citizens. And so, like, you have this, um, you know, bounty hunters coming out of the woodwork, which is kind of alluded to, um, and based on a real person that that did happen for. And Cincinnati suddenly goes from a place that was safe just on the other side of the River of the South to a place that was no longer safe. Um, And so to have an established location that has a specific address is incredibly important here. Um, And again, you know, I'm in my 30s now. Just 40 is just over there. But um, to have a permanent address is important. And you're about as based on your age, Chase, you're about to be nomadic and floating from your home to your college, to your first apartment on campus, to your first apartment off campus. And it's an exciting time because each time you get to write down your own address again. Um, and so for her to have this address is clearly important. That's why it keeps being repeated.
2: Yeah, I'm just opened up with that, that you mentioned that and I'm on page what is it, 18, so relatively early on. And Setha is speaking, I got a tree on my back and a haint in my house. And ain't nothing between uh, but the daughter I'm holding in my arms. No more running from nothing. I will never run from another thing on this earth. I took one journey, and I paid the ticket. But let me tell you something, Paul D. Garner, cost too much. Do you hear me? Cost too much. So again, that, that rootedness, that that idea that having a place and, and not wanting to run anymore, even though it's haunted and that'll come back, um, yeah, it's important. So just, I just happen to be on that page when you mention that, Nick.
0: How do we want to address this? Like, I, I, I have again. We were talking about books. Like, we were talking about doing like a hundred years of solitude. I'm like, but how would we even talk about sure. it? How do we even talk about this? Because like the beginning of it is so incredibly dark. Not that any part of it isn't dark mm-hmm. at times. Uh, there, there are funny bits. There are engaging bits. But it's generally a pretty dour book, which understandable. No criticism here. But we have this beginning section where there's a baby and they're gonna, they are gonna—they might lose the baby and she's talking about whether her breasts will produce milk or not and the milk goes sour and that comes up time and time again and it's, A, it's incredibly sad, incredibly depressing and incredibly poignant. There, there, there's a reason why this is eternal. I'm curious how that goes over in a classroom because I've had a wife who's been breastfeeding. <laughs> and so like that part of it to me is so significant because as a mother, the one thing you want to be able to do is nurture and protect your child. And this is a world where that's often impossible. And even, I guess, ironically, something that's kind of emulated here, if you're the wealthy whites in society, they have wet nurses to take care of that for you as well. You, they also don't breastfeed their children, but for them, it's by choice and by her, it's by health or by, you know, the inability to do so. Right.
2: I think she's speaking to the injustice of slavery, right? So the women can't because of slavery, they can't protect their own child, and that's what's haunting Zetha. Um, but even the, the idea of the wet nurse, you're not in control of your body, your master is in control of your body, and we saw that when, when the boys take Zetha's milk later on, um, in that horrific scene. Um, and so yeah, her ability to to mother, to care, and to do her job in that way is what, what haunts her, and, and the fact that she couldn't protect. Yeah, it's tough to talk about because you don't you want the reader whoever's listening to this to experience it for themselves the first time and not just give it away. Not not that's like a mystery, but it's it is
1: kind of a
2: mystery. Yeah, it is. It definitely. Yeah, it is definitely a mystery and it takes a while to figure that out as you're reading it. But you have to experience it. Um, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I don't know. Um yeah, so what did we talk about?
0: Well, I mean, and, and again, just, just to talk about it here, um, in, the, in the great book banning that happened in the last couple of years, uh, this was another one that was often on the shopping block. Uh, in the 2017, they almost banned it in Virginia. Again, it was always the sexually explicit stuff in here. Um, we're very puritanical at its core. Um, I, I think there's still weight in it, of course, um, and importance here. And so, of course, we still teach it here, uh, and I think people should read it. Though, again, I almost wish you could be in a classroom to read it because it is helpful to talk about it as it goes because it's complicated. Um, but since we just talked about it, I'm on 19 of my version, which is maybe the same as yours. Who knows? It has a different cover. Uh, what she knew was the responsibility for her breast at least was in someone else's hands. Whether it be a little space she wanted, a little time, some way to hold off the eventfulness and push the busyness into the corner of the room and just stand there for a minute or two. And, you know, she's talking about the ability to, to feed, and, you know, she goes into this, and she's worried about the smell of sour milk um, as this world is happening around her. But this also talks about the power of the body. I mention that because she is so convinced of her world that she has no control over herself. So just to stand there for a second in her own way is incredibly important to her. And we get into this the more... I know it sounds like I'm talking Scooby-Doo, I'm not, but whether or not there's a ghost baby becomes important And in that moment, we're talking about can she be a mother? Um, And even reading through stuff to make sure I understood it, like there's um, they talk about like sex and her body developing and pubic hair. And it's all part of this narrative of her trying to grow up to be a person in a world where she's not allowed to be an independent person. I'm curious how that was how you can address that in a high school classroom. Because when we teach stuff, Mike and I, at least in literature, um, some stuff is sexually explicit, but not like this. This this is this is a different because it's not sexual. It's it's strange. It's different. It's hard. It's very difficult.
2: Yeah, it is very difficult. And and how you define sex because there's both sort of like consensual loving relationship and rape. Right. And so those are two very different. Types of sex, um, and but it's all in here. I would say generally when I was teaching, you just let the students' questions guide you, mm-hmm. um, and what they're concerned about or, or confused by is how I would do that. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't, and I'm just I opened to the line, and this, this is um, a famous line from it, but it, it sort of speaks to what we're talking about, and this is. Um, anything uh, coming back to life hurts. And this is when Setha is talking about like her feet were um, all cut up when she's trying to escape. And, and Amy, the person she runs into, is trying to nurse her back. But that whole memory, the idea of dealing with the memory, is hard to face. And that is causing its own trauma as it's coming back to life. That
0: scene is just... That, her, her healing, her convalescence, her stumbling across Amy on the verge of death that's a that's again that's a tough going, and again I, I was I use um not not to plug it, but I use um, I forget what it's called but it's Kindle so I was reading along and then you can switch the audiobook and switch back and forth and I was listening to it and I was like I got to read that I have to go back. Was <laughs> it Morrison
2: reading too?
0: Um, the version I had
2: was her reading. Okay, yeah, she's got such that wonderful. She's a really good reader. Yeah, and her deep voice and yeah, yeah it's very resonant, so very. The way she paces it too is really like savors it in a way that it sort of lingers with you. Reminds me
0: also of like Maya Angelou. It's this kind of right. deep. It's kind of resinous. Right. Um, but yeah, no. It's it's. And so I'm like, I gotta, I gotta follow this. But that's done again, it's brutal. <laughs> um, and so, gosh, I I know we keep kind of walking in circles here. So let's talk about this in terms of themes because chronologically. There's too many little things, I think, to go over. So let's talk about this in terms of how the book portrays these characters. A big part of it is the mother and daughter, and there's this relationship between mothers and daughters and maternal mm-hmm. maternalism, um, which is, of course, opposite of manhood. Manhood is is another theme, like how to define manhood, et cetera, et cetera. So we have womanhood, which is defined as the ability to be maternal, which is often taken away from them. They Their children are lost, their children are taken, um, Etc. Versus masculinity. So, um, in Ohio, we have that. You know, she's protecting her daughter as she sees it, but what she's doing is keeping Dender from interacting with the black community. Um, and so she feels like she's gotten arrested development. She's not really developing the way she wants to. and That's kind of part of it.
2: Um, she being Sepha just to be clear. Yeah. You
0: uh, have an exorcism too. I, this is so confused. I'm so, well, uh, yeah, you're I mean, teaching me. It's right. a ghost
2: story, right? It, it's a, Yeah. And the ah, the ghost is slavery. Right. And metaphorically and literally in, in some ways. And so if we're talking in like a, the mile high view. Is slavery America's ghost? Is slavery what is haunting our society today? I think you could definitely argue, yes, that we're still dealing with that. Um and traumatized by that and that, that's part of it i think that's the value in teaching it today mm-hmm. chasing out of your head what, what i do you would a,
1: i would agree i think the ghost is so many different things too because i think there are so many moments when it's slavery and then so many moments when it switches to being so like intimately involved in setha and denver's life where you're like this isn't just something that's shared and experienced by so many people it's also in, a member of the family and that's kind of when it i, I don't want to spoil it but when it seems like it really is beloved right daughter and when and then it switches back and it leaves you disoriented um especially in the end of the book when it it kind of declares itself as both
2: right oh absolutely right and that famous last line is is not a story to pass on right and how like it's difficult to talk you don't want to pass it on but it's not a story you can pass on you you need to address this you need to deal with it and so jumped way ahead there but um, to needs to be said right yeah it is hard not to and so and the ending isn't necessarily satisfying in some ways it is or it isn't but um,
1: I feel like the ending is made to be satisfied for satisfying in some ways for the ghost that's living in 124 specifically with like kind of like Setha's last decision in the book and how the ghost reacts kind of by what happens with, kind of where its presence goes, and then I it kind of seems like, it's being, the story is being finished, and then the last line, like you were saying, it kind of leaves it unfinished.
2: Yeah, because there's more to say, or there's more to deal with, and which is what we're still dealing with, or yeah. what was happening in '87 when she published this. Yeah.
0: Well, and I mean, I don't know how to put this, but it seems like Setha has ghosts, and she's also making her own. Um, you know, obviously, she wanted to be a mother, and under slavery, mothers lost their children. And you know, she can't couldn't feed them. Then she had her milk stolen, and now she has a daughter that she won't let grow, kind of, because she wants her to stay a child. And that's also traumatic. Like, and I mean, you keep mentioning that it's the world it's written in too, but. You know, in the '80s and the '70s is when we start talking about reparations again. And you know, um, if Betsy Holcomb was here, we'd be talking about is this a Catholic book? And the question of forgiveness is incredibly complicated in this, right? You know, um, I think Toni Morrison is a Catholic. Was a Catholic?
2: I believe that's me. correct. Yeah. But
0: like, it, like the themes here of are trying to establish trauma and whether or not there can even be forgiveness. So she's kind of manifested that into a ghost, um, that, that haunting, right? Because her past is haunting her, um, which is understandable. So, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Oh, sorry. Anything you want to bring up? You look like you're, you're scanning no, through no, stuff. No.
2: You have any favorite passages or quotes, Chase?
0: Um, I,
1: what I, really like this is kind of a niche thing but I was like looking through my notes in preparation for this and something that I tracked throughout the book was like the mention of like trees and I think like kind of how the ghost kind of veils deeper things like the trauma of slavery and like things going on inside that family but I also think the way trees veil things when Setha, like regarding the scars on her back, is like, oh, this is the tree in my back. I think there's like a, oh, right. there's like a layer of even kind of deceit or like a layer of not wanting to look things fully in the face because, or just maybe choosing to look at them in a more optimistic way. But I think it's interesting to see like the intersection between the trauma and nature kind of mentions because, like you were saying, it makes it more confusing.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the choke cherry tree, which is an illusion. There's a very famous photograph of the um, escaped slave who has it's, it's the keloid scars on his back from, from the whipping. That's what I always think of when I think of that. What's the guy's name? Is it Harold? Gordon.
0: Gordon, Gordon, the Gordon yeah. that's right. The Gordon yeah. photos. Um, he'll even pose later on for, I believe, the Smithsonian. But there are pictures of him with the accoutrement of slavery, like the, the neck braces. Oh, is that the, the same guy? So, oh really? I didn't know that. Um, but the the metaphor of trees and jungles is often used a lot in this. The one I had was white people believed that whether the manners under every dark skin was a jungle, swift, unimaginable waters, swinging, screaming baboons, sleeping snakes, red gums ready for the sweet white blood. Uh, in a way, they were right. But it wasn't uh, the jungle blacks that brought with them to this place. It was the jungle white folks planted in them, and it grew and it spread until it invaded the whites who had made it. Uh, made them bloody, silly, worse than they even wanted to be. So, scared um, scared were they of the jungle that they had made. A screaming baboon lived under their own white skin. The red gums were their own. Um, that's the beginning of part two. But, like, we get this metaphor growing out. Like, it's... Parts of this are just poetry. Like, I pick it up, and I read it, and I get it, and I liked it, and I marked it, and, again, I've read this twice now... And I don't know how it all fits together, but it's impressive. Like Mike said, I feel like I should read it again in a couple of years, and and try it again um, because I I do like it, and I like the bluest eyes and the, the, this type of literature needs to be taken slowly, and I'm just not someone who does that well. <laughs> so I need to <laughs> read it again, and I enjoyed it when I do read it. It's just it's hard. It's hard.
2: Yeah. Should we try to just sort of thumbnail sketch some of the characters? Sure, let's do that. Not giving so much away. So, take, tell tell us about Seth. Setha. How, okay. did, you, how did you say it? Setha.
0: Setha. Yeah. Setha. Right. Okay. You
1: gave me the hard one.
0: Okay, fine. I'll give you a different <laughs> one. <laughs> tell tell me thinking. about Denver. Okay,
1: Den- Denver. Denver the last Denver. dinosaur. Well, you also kind of reminded me when you were talking about the jungles. I I immediately thought of. Denver's emerald hideaway. Right, right, little bower, yeah. And that's what I was bringing up about the trees, how it's like trees are so negative. The jungle, you think it's so foreboding and dark and confusing, but then Denver is going to trees for refuge. Um, So I I just always think that those contradictions are interesting. But Denver is, um, is is it Seth old? No. Youngest. Youngest daughter. Mm -hmm. Youngest daughter who lives in 124 with her, and I feel like she's constantly grasping for identity because she's always asking for setha to tell her the story of her birth and then kind of it reveals at some point in the book that she hasn't left the house in 12 years and so for so long in the book she's just really just this confined person and i feel like you don't even really get to know that much about her because you only really know who she is kind of in relation to setha and paul d and in relation to 124 and then kind of finally she breaks away from that but I feel like she's easy and she's hard to talk about because you feel like you know a lot about her and then not at all.
0: Yeah, and, and she represents that that fear of the mother that she will lose her child, right, once again. Um, and so, like, her emotional growth has been kind of stunted, and what she wants to do is leave home and be an independent person, but she's kind of trapped.
2: Yeah, and in, in terms of storytelling and re-memory and retelling... It's... Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, Denver is sort of a stand-in for the reader, right? Because as she's learning more, you're learning more as the novel's unfolding. And, it, and nothing's really clear for her, as you're saying, Chase. But she wants to know more, and she wants to sort of figure this out and tell me about my birth. But Setha for very good reasons, is traumatized, and telling that story is, is difficult for her, and she doesn't want to revisit some of those things. Right. Uh, so you get these sort of little drips. Uh, of what happens, and that's part of the mystery. You're trying to figure out what happens
1: exactly because you don't really have an outside source to give you an understanding. It's all within one twenty four, so right. you're kind of confused with Denver, right?
0: um And it, it it's it, it's it's a a forbidding kind of trap for her because one's freedom, right. <laughs> Denver, one's freedom. Uh, let's talk about Beloved. How about that?
2: Well, let, let's go to Paul D first, let's right? Paul yeah, D. Okay. so. Setha and Denver are there, and then Paul D. shows up, who she knew from Sweet Home, right. which you, again, sort of learn in a circuitous way uh, was the plantation they were on uh, in Kentucky. And uh, supposedly this was... You know, Sweet Home men were different, referring to the uh, the slaves there, and there's expectations of them, and their conduct was treated different than nearby plantations. Right. But Setha was apparently... Um, very attractive back then and very much in, um, how do I say it, just sort of like um, all the guys wanted to be with her, be, the, be her husband and, and be paired with her. Um, and so for Paul D. to reunite, that, that kind of rekindles that uh, and brings that back, and that's really confusing to Denver. She feels left out because, oh, here's my mom. She's sent, this is a, something that happened before I was around, but she doesn't quite understand it. And so there's there's family jealousy and dynamics there well and paul had been like on a chain
0: gang and it really like destroys him mm-hmm. and that's the trauma he's repressing and so the way he deals with it is rather than have a ghost kind of chase him around uh he rejects everything right he doesn't he, he he's kind of a you know, rolling stone um
2: that was the great metaphor of the little tin. I was uh, gonna yeah, that read, go ahead. Do you have that quote, or do you, I, you remember no, that? No, I don't have quote,
1: but I, every time I think of how you were saying him being so closed off, is the little tin. It's tobacco tin, right? The
0: rusted yeah, tin. Yeah, I have
1: it. And then his encounter with beloved, the tin kind of seems to burst open, but I mean,
2: I had that's a hard it. one to But that's another thing to track. So how do these exactly. characters deal with that trauma? That trauma that they are keeping bottled up um because it's so painful to deal with and then how do the how do they open up or do they ever open up it, it's sort of a through line through the through the story um yeah. so Paul D and Setha rekindle a relationship or, or begin a relationship um which makes Denver and beloved jealous but when Paul D first shows up and correct if it's been a while since I read it but doesn't he banish the ghost initially The baby ghost is there. Uh, Right.
1: He's throwing furniture around the house because there's a scene where they go downstairs and everything is kind of all apart because he has like an encounter with the ghost. But then shortly after, the ghost appears in the flesh and then she's beloved there and can't, you know, she's there and not in the house just through spirit form.
0: I swear we read this. No, you know, but, no, but it, no, you're right. But as, yeah. a, as a reader,
2: you don't know that initially. So we kind of gave something away right there. Um, it's a little slippery, like when Beloved shows up, like, who is this person and what does she represent? And, and then, yeah, that's where it gets into the magic realism. And it, is this really happening? Are these characters really reacting this way? This is a hard book to
0: categorize. Not that you have to categorize all novels, but... We've been talking, we've done a few books that would almost be Southern Gothic, and this, this isn't that. This really does feel like a late 20th century magical realism book where at any point someone could just appear. And, and th- th- there's magic in the walls, and that, that makes it interesting, especially with the narrative style that holds this book together. Um, uh, I mean, who else do you want to talk about? There's Baby Sugs, there's uh, what? Stamp Paid, there's a school teacher. Sure you, I'm sure you spent a lot of time on all these people. Uh-huh,
1: I did. Um, <laughs> hmm.
0: We can talk about Denver, and we can talk about Beloved. Do you guys have
2: opinions? No, I mean, yeah, there's... We learn about Sweet Home and what happened there, and school teacher, and the awful things that happened to them there. Right. Um, and why they escape tried to escape and, and what happens as a result of that yeah so Garner tr- like owns Sweet
0: Home right and then when he passes uh, it falls to school
2: teachers school teachers incredibly like cruel and, and racist and it really In a very hates sy- everyone. systematic way right oh, yeah. he's studying mm-hmm. um, the slaves and exploiting them that way well and like Speaking of like the magical realism, he
0: he he's depicted almost like a monster. Like he he never seems to sleep, he never seems to eat. He's just cruel, and it gets worse and worse, making him more monstrous, right? Uh, and bringing out these kind of like animal characteristics in the slaves and in himself, like to kind of match the evil that's going on around him.
2: And as you said, we get flashbacks of Paul D and what happened to him um, on the chain gang, and then how he gets out of that very traumatic horrifying experience, how he makes his way back to Ohio. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, Baby Suggs, you want to talk about her? Baby Suggs, sure, why not? What do you have about Baby Suggs?
1: I very vividly remember going along with how you kind of have to track things. I remember her kind of love of color towards the end of Mm -hmm. her life, and kind of that's how you track. Um, And then something... I mean, I just want to comment on this. I just think this is one of, like, the things that is so crazy about the book that it's one of, like, the sadnesses that isn't explored, but I I vividly remember when she's having, like, everyone over and how she's, like, such a welcoming person and how, honestly, it seems like her, her, like, welcoming nature seems to backfire towards the end of the book and how through she's projecting so much love outwards, but then it spirals and she kind of is depressed towards the end of her life. And I think really that kind of indicates towards like the trajectory of trauma in this book, how it kind of is going up and down, and how you can, and then how she is so prevalent in the book, but also not there living in the book, kind of like with the theme of re memory, like she's so there and you know so much about her, but she's not actually living.
0: Right. And um, I don't know if we established this, but Baby Suggs is kind of like a preacher, like, right? (laughs) Like, there are these religious gatherings in the clearing. And she, like, is kind of a, you know, it's the black church, right? Like, it's the center point for people to meet. And then, after Seth's uh, active infanticide, uh, which we can talk about later, Seth, uh, Baby Suggs, literally kind of goes to a deathbed and dies. But, like you said, there's the magical realism again. Because of the, the lack of linearity in the plot, um, the, the flashbacks and such, the, the part three it almost as though baby slugs matters more as someone exactly. who's no longer dead
1: mm-hmm. because you don't even hear about any of the church scenes until like so much later in right. the book when you know a, another character has already entered the plot and you're like well where did baby slugs come from again
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely
2: um no and i was just and it just the, again the confusing sort of elusive nature is is then Beloved becomes a voice later and and she's telling her point of view um, which is confusing um, but Um, appropriate because she is taking control and um, controlling Setha and the other characters so she literally takes control of the book at certain places in that way yeah Halley Hale did... I think Hallie. Hallie, yeah. I
0: would, I would imagine it's Halley like Halley Selassie but could be wrong uh, Seth's husband right baby Sug's son who's kind and generous and so something terrible is going to happen um, and he is the one who kind of points out the fact that everyone's saying that the, the Garners have this benevolent form of slave owner, like they're good people they're good slave owners uh, but then he himself goes mad after uh, witnessing the schoolteacher's rape of Setha, which, you know, again, it's we have an optimistic character and meeting a very brutal end. Mm-hmm. Um, and from a historical perspective, uh, you know, the idea of having benevolent slaveholder is something that you know they're really bumping up against, right? This is the lost cause mentality that's being tamped down finally in the late '60s, '70s, and '80s. And so we have a character who's aware of what's going on and becomes kind of a victim of this cruelty uh, mentally and physically, which is important here. Right? Um, yeah, this is good. We're, we're getting to all the, the things by talking about these characters, which, again, it's, 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 it's a book that says time jumps around a lot. You've really got to dive into it. We just don't have the time to literally read it aloud and stop. Mm-hmm. You, you would need six weeks or so, exactly. it seems like.
2: Uh, Nor do we want to. I, no, I mean, I'll, yeah, I'll say that it should be experienced and read on your own. So, um.
0: Um, it's been years since I've seen it, but rereading it, I'm incredibly impressed they made a movie out of this because it seems like it'd be a very difficult material. Well, I've never seen the film. The movie's good. Is it? Did um, you it's see it, Oprah Winfrey. I,
2: right. I knew been of been it, aware. but I've never seen it. Me yeah.
0: I mean, when this book came out, it was so big. I, it's almost like they had to make one. Um, and the fact that it's any good at all, it blows me away. Cause I saw that night, nice, uh, Winter's Tale, which is a great book and a terrible movie. So this could have been magical realism is hard to film, Um, and, uh, the 1988 movie with Oprah was, was, was excellent. Um, but it's been years. So good to know. yeah, good. Interesting. Uh, facts, I'm so full of facts. I'm helpful
1: because I would never like imagine this coming movie just because like, it's so hard to even like discern like a clear plot it yeah we can't even me, talk about it right? <laughs> when, like they made the goldfinch movie and it's a great book but then you're like where's the plot and right it's an amazing cast but like what's going on here and that's i mean i haven't seen the movie but it's kind of like one of those things where your your expectations are always going to be greater than what it is i agree it's, it's based on the
2: book so in the film nick what's the point of view how do they how do they do that because there's different points of view throughout this and
0: I'm tired, and I thought you said, what's the point of you? And I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm trying to be here. No, I mean, um, they simplify the plot, sig- plot significantly. It's told Oprah Winfrey and Danny Glover the two leads. Okay. And they try to simplify it to keep a straightforward narrative.
2: Maybe um, I mean, they just tell, like, a, a escape story and flashing back to their...
0: No, I mean, it's essentially... It starts out in Ohio, right? She's a former slave, just like the book. But the story is a much more like end-to-end with flashbacks back and forth just okay. to simplify it um it's directed by jonathan demi you know like uh, the guy who did philadelphia sure. silence of the lambs right. it's not making sense so it's like it's in capable hands it's even produced by oprah so uh you know it got an oscar nod but it was a box office bomb uh, the reviews were good just no one saw it right it's, it's kind of that situation. which again, like, it's got a good cast. It's Danny Glover in it. I like him. Uh, I like Oprah, generally. Um, so, yeah. I have, I have very little to add to this conversation. I was confused at times. It's okay.
2: I, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of speechless here, so I don't feel bad. But well, let's talk about... The, I don't the... want to give it all away. Um, it's hard to not give it away. It's hard not to give it away. Uh, we do on other books, but there's something almost like sacred about this. and That's the wrong sort of word, but there, there's a reverence I want to give to the book and to the readers to experience it on their own. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm making sense.
1: And I also feel like to give something away, you're giving it away from one perspective. True. Because this book has so many different perspectives. You can't tell the ending five different times from five different perspectives. You just have to read it. Right. Right.
2: And then as we talk about in the clip, require reading or rereading. Every time you go back to it, you're going to bring a new version of yourself to it and where you are and where we are as a country. And I think that will inform it and shape it in, in interesting ways. Well, I mean, how about this
0: then? Because we're, we've kind of reached a dead end that we can actually talk about without giving too much of the plot away. Um, you know, you have, you mentioned Amy before, the woman who saved her life. Her name is Amy Denver. So she names her youngest child Denver in honor. And, and you have this kind of, battle between her past and her present and we have literally her past interrupts the story as it's going and it's kind of building around this ghost character which we kind of alluded to earlier and kind of leaked um i don't know if we're ready to kind of wrap this up or just how we talk about the end of this but as someone who learned this book in a classroom what do you think the benefit of a book like this is in a high school classroom?
2: That's a great question.
1: Um, okay, I'll start. Um, I think with kind of, I mean, first off, I think because this has such, like, a distinctive historical element, I think even having that where it's you have, like, an outer source or, like, outer peers who are reminding you of, oh, this is a historical time period or, oh, like, Track, especially with so many perspectives, like even just having people to kind of hold you accountable to track different elements of the story, I think helps. And I also think, or at least this is for me, I have like such a such a natural like sense of reading something really fast and rushing through it, and not rereading all of the pages if I don't understand something, or kind of going to look it up. And I think really the 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 value of reading this isn't in a classroom is that you get something back from it and you are able to sort of have your own understanding of it because you're enabled that through deeply analyzing it. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's harder to, like, be held accountable to analyze something super deeply when you're reading independently. So I think really just the aspect of doing it with multiple people with a group helps.
2: Yeah, I agree. And that's really well said, Chase. And I would say this makes me think of the conversation we had just a couple weeks ago uh, about death comes for the archbishop. Right. Like we all came in here thinking, I don't know, I don't like this book. But throughout our conversation, you sort of come around like hearing different, like, oh, yeah, you're right about that. or You're right about that. And it, it deepens the experience. And so I think in the classroom, um, if you can foster that sort of shared inquiry, the I- idea, and then not everyone's going to have all the answers, but you're going to wrestle with this together. Um, I think that really brings out the richness in the book. And you get to have a certain humility in approaching this. And I certainly do. Like, there's no way I understand everything in this book, nor will I probably ever, but by talking with other people about it, I'll get little things, both historical, like shocking things about slavery I never know, or America won't talk about, or interesting insights on being a mother or a, or a, a brother or a sister that um, that only other people might bring out for you. So I think it's really rich that way. It's, 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 it's a great book for discussion. Mm-hmm. I think it demands being discussed, actually. Yes. It's tough to read on your own. So like you said, Nick, I can imagine that would be really kind of hard.
0: Well, and I'm just curious um, if you've, if either of you have read many other you know, slave narratives or near slave narratives like this was kind of the 1870s, because you know, something like The Color Purple is also very poignant, very difficult, but in some ways it's more chronological, so it's easier to follow than this. Um, even the bluest eye, I think, is a little bit easier chronologically than this, and so I think what you said, Chase, in particular, is important and interesting here. The complexity keeps you engaged. I think when you read something like Roots, Alex Haley's Roots, excellent. The, the, the show with LeVar Burton, excellent. But it just beats you down, and it by the end of it, like it's incredibly like you, you're drained emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, this complexity is much more engaging in some way because to keep track of everything, you have to keep paying attention. You can't turn that off. Um, And then there's like characters that I don't want to say don't fit the narrative because this is a very tight narrative It works, but like Lady Jones, for example, you have a woman in the community who is of mixed race because there's, she's like the product of, 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 I, I guess it's assumed rape but she has blonde hair and light skin and she doesn't feel like she's part of the community and she hates her blonde hair. That's kind of her characteristic. So we have someone who's a part of the community and there's rape throughout this book and that rejects her. And there's this kind of debate between who has free will, what what is a matter of circumstance. And all of that comes together in such an interesting way. And in, in some ways there's a philosophy to this, to this book that feels Incredibly complex, and I and I like that. I think it keeps the book more engaging. Then again, I, I I've read a lot of um, slave r- literature and slave narratives. This this is something that keeps me entangled in its plot.
1: And I also think like when you're reading it at such a close lens, and the plot is so complicated, it you move past the point of having a preference and saying, oh, I like this or I don't like this, and it's more you just have a des- desire to understand it. And I think that is also the added benefit of learning it in a classroom. I mean, you have to live with this book for a month and a half, so it doesn't really matter if you like it or you don't like it because you want to understand it. And I also think that like, helps you really like, kind of settle in and like really devote yourself to what's going on because it's not just something you're picking up on your own time. It's something that is being presented to you and saying, oh, think about this. So I think that, you know, it kind of reduces the intimidation that's
2: a great point and i'll just throw this out hypothetically because it's such a heavy and complex book do you think people just pick it up i mean hopefully someone listening to this would just pick it up who might not otherwise i highly encourage that but do you need to have that support system to read it i mean would you just like i'm gonna go to the library and read beloved on my own
0: You you have to have a real work ethic otherwise, I think, because Mm -hmm. you could read it, but you just have to keep going. Like, I think the book is rewarding. Um, When I was talking to Chase about this, I said, this is a perfect book to teach in a classroom because A, you get that support, but B, if you get lost, you know, you still have to read it the next night. Like, I can see this being a book that frustrates people so they put Mm -hmm. it down and don't come back to it, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a shame. I'm glad you you made me finish it again because I think it has real value here. Um, but I'm with you. I, th- I think it would be helpful to read this as part of a book group or something or a book club. I agree. I
1: mean, yeah, no, you're fine. I like, this, I would have, even if they were like, okay, we're going to stop this book mid-book, right. you know, I still would have finished it. But, mm-hmm. I mean, like, we read Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, and I needed the motivation of re- having to read 50 assigned pages. And I think it varies from person to person, but right. like you were saying, having the accountability of a, of a group saying oh, you have to seek this out intentionally because it's in front of you helps. Because like you were saying, who's going to, you know, it takes a very, you know, you're a driven person to go to the library and say, I'm going to read this super complicated book that I know it's going to really make me think.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's an important book. I don't think you can ignore the importance of it. That, That alone is enough reason to do it. But to do it without someone to talk to is hard, I would think
0: when you get that weight of picking up a book that says Nobel Prize winner on their project, it's sure. like, oh, I'm doing something important. Right. Um, this is random, but it, I think, I, I think it was when Chase was talking, but I was reminded of Bob Ficus, um, a former religion teacher here. Uh, but when you got a book and you had to bring it to his class, he would have you open it to the middle, increase the binding, and then, you know, do it throughout, you know, congratulations, it's yours now. Oh, really? Mark it up, don't, you're keeping it now. So mark it up, flag it, whatever you need to do. When you get your copy of Beloved, get it. You can get it used. Go to Second and Charles. Get it for <laughs> two bucks. But this is a book where you have to mark it up. This is not one to just read and put aside. Mm-hmm. This isn't a far side comic book. Like it's it's it helps to circle the names. It helps to underline stuff to just to keep track, because the next chapter might be back in time, and if you don't do that, you'll be lost. But then it's rewarding. If you're keeping track of it, it is very rewarding.
2: And, yeah, I think that's by design, right? Because she's trying to replicate the difficult nature of talking about these things and dealing in how do you tell a story like this?
0: Yeah. And chronologically in our class right now, we're teaching Gatsby again, and... When you go through a paragraph and you point out how everything references itself, again, you mentioned it here. This is what Morrison does, is why she is a Nobel laureate and I'm not. But just to put that much effort and thought into every single page, I don't know how long it took her to write this, mm-hmm. but I imagine there's a hundred drafts to, to get to this level because every sentence is like flawed in a way that she intentionally makes it flawed to make the book perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's remarkable. Exquisitely
2: crafted. There's no doubt about that.
0: Yeah. i um. considering that in her lifetime as a writer, which I guess she was first known in what the, she, she first made a big, probably in the late sixties, early seventies. I think bluest eye is 70. You know, she put out some 15, 20 books in her lifetime and none of them are light reading. Uh, that's incredible. Like, You know, I don't know how you compare her to anyone, but she's up there with feminists like uh, Margaret Atwood or something. You know, uh, it's got so much weight to it. It's incredible. We'll probably have to come back to her um, eventually. There's so much there's so much on our docket.
2: Chase, I'm I'm curious, and I'm not trying to put um, you on the spot here, but given that it's like I said, we never I never really learned about slavery in Cobb County schools in the 80s. Um, how much context did you need to help understand this book about the slavery or or just in general? What what was it like coming to you a year or two ago for you? I'm
1: trying to think. I mean, I think, like, the interesting thing about this is, like, it's so, like, personal in, like, being in an isolated location and having, like, really kind of a short character list. I mean, it's, like, the... Trauma and the memory of slavery is so present, but you don't, I feel like in this book, and you guys can tell me if you agree, I don't ever, there are very few instances when I feel like historic, the historical narrative and the fictional narrative that Morrison kind of gives us through Setha and Denver that's, you know, derived from the historical story, but I don't feel like they intersect, they ever intersected to a point where I was confused. So okay. I think obviously you have to have context, but I also think, going at it and kind of reading it and say, oh, I'm going to look at this within the context of this, but also look at it as a very, like a separate thing and a work of its own and something that kind of sheds a new perspective on it. I think like we didn't do that much historical context before because we all obviously beyond the time period. Sure. I mean, I kind of think like, depends on what you want to make of it.
2: Mm -hmm. I
1: mean, what would you say, like having taught it? What did you feel like was the best approach to
2: that? Well, I think what is both good and, and what needs to be discussed is just the trauma of slavery and just like what it was like for these people. And we, you know, you read a slave narrative or you read statistics or you even look at the horrible photos of Gordon and whomever. That's one way of telling a story. But to really get into the interiority of these characters and the traumatizing nature of that generationally as mm-hmm. this is carried through the generations I think that is a valuable insight to talk about as far as America and, and the legacy of slavery that you wouldn't necessarily get just looking at stats or um, you know visiting the slave cabin or something like that, but just to sort of realize that the real full nature of this and what it was like to live with mm-hmm. that yeah
1: I think it tells you its own story in the context of a bigger story right but it makes you think about both of them in relation to one another and in some moments you're so caught up in the family dynamic there and then have, as we talked <clears throat> about with beloved meaning so many different things you're reminded of the greater picture and I think that's one of the like the rewarding parts about this book is because you get so invested in just the characters in 124 but then you get so invested in the greater history that it talks about. and like you're so impacted by that
0: well and I mean Justin is kind of wrapping up here but like this book is also interesting because clearly Toni Morrison was aware of what was going on historically at the time as well and so like this book is a reaction to critical race theory which kind of hits its apex in the early 70s is having a resurgence now but critical race theory doesn't deal well with class and gender and this deals with both of those as a way to critique that right? right um also, in the 80s, you have the, the rise of what's called body history or, his, you know, talking about how the body is affected and changes happen. You know, Vietnam with the development of PTSD as a theory and coming out, well, let's look at how people are changed by this. And that's all over this as well.
2: Right. And I remember how, it came up in class recently and I asked you this question and someone out there might know. But the idea is there like a somatic lens related to the body because how, how your own body stores trauma like from right. a broken bone or whatever, that, that is a way that is stored in you. Uh, and then there's a whole thing on epigenetics. You guys know about that and how it's sort of like your environment will turn on or off certain you know, gene sequences and has an influence on your children later. Yeah. Um, that's all sort of unfolding as we as we go. Yeah. But yeah, back to the point, like it, it seems you read something like uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is very melodramatic and a it, certain view of slavery from the time period. And then you read something like this. Which is much richer, I guess. Oh. I don't know. It's yeah, more interior, I should say.
0: Probably. Um, that, 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 that's how I put
2: it. Yeah, they both have their value, but it's just a different twist on the same sort of story.
0: Uncle Tom's is almost like a, an action narrative. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, well, Chase, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Mike, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Chase. This is awesome. Um, thanks for all of you out there in Listen Land. Uh, we appreciate all you do. We do it because you're listening. Uh, next week, we're changing it up significantly and having a graphic novel uh, and a graphic novelist coming to talk about it. Um, uh, Raina Telgemeier. Er, Raina Telgemeier. I don't know. I can never get the name right. Her book Smile is on the docket for next month to keep it a little bit light. But then we're going to Victorian England for Jane Eyre. So uh, pray for us. Um, but thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for doing all you do to keep us on the charts around the world. And bye. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Required Reading is a
0: product of Marist Podcasting and Dude Letter Podcasting. It is hosted by Nick Hoffman and co hosted by Mike Burns and Mike Carroll. It is edited and produced by Nick Hoffman. The theme is Sands by Davis Burns. The opinions expressed are opinions of the hosts and the guests, but not of Marist School. All rights reserved. Thanks.